Do a reading from uh, John chapter 17 and uh, start from verse 1 and read to verse 19. So John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know you in truth that I came to, come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, do give you thanks for uh, your word, which is truth. We thank you that you have uh, revealed it to us as your people. Thank you that you've opened our eyes and our hearts to believe in uh, the truth of your word. We thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, that you came to do the work of your Father and you accomplished it uh, perfectly. Thank you for your perfect uh, obedience and the way that you did consecrate yourself to um, that work. We pray um, Spirit, that you would continue that work of sanctification in each one uh, of us. We pray uh, that that would happen even this evening. We pray uh, for your servant as he speaks to us, um, that you would give him clarity um, and wisdom in all he says, and give us hearts to understand what you have to say uh, to us this evening. And please do then bless uh, your word to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
<coughs> well, it's my unusual pleasure to welcome tonight someone who doesn't need a welcome. He's, I'm sure he's known to most of you. That's Colin Hart, the director of the Christian Institute. He probably wouldn't want me to say this, but I think we must all be grateful to God for the work that Colin has done in terms of building up a team to stand for biblical truth in the world today. And I suppose it's a measure of the need of the Christian issue today that as the world in which we live now departs so much from the Bible as God's word and departs so much from his truth, so the need for the Christian Institute has been increased. And Colin, we're grateful to you for all that you've done. I don't think he willingly agreed to do this lecture on this autumn series. He had somebody else in mind, but greatness fell upon him. And the subject tonight is Christ and culture. And he's going to talk to us tonight about that. There are some handouts. I don't, I don't approve of handouts, personally, because I think they distract from the attention that should be given to the speaker. However, you've got them. You've had them for all these lectures, I think. So I'm not in control of events, as you can see. But you've got some notes there which will guide you through what he's going to say. So, Colin, look forward to what you have to say on the theme Christ and culture. And you do wish to take questions at the end, don't you? Yes. Good. Thank you. Okay. Well, Well, as John said, it is an unusual thing for me to be on this side of the microphone. Um, but let me talk tonight about what is uh, culture, what is uh, Christians' response to culture, individually as Christians. How do we respond? Because Jesus said that those who love him must obey him. And Jesus is the creator and he's the sustainer of the universe. So... How then should we relate as individual Christians uh, to culture tonight? Now, people often think of culture as uh, literature, music, art, drama, and it's all of those things. But the word culture actually means many more things. If you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it includes the following. The development of the mind, faculties, manners, intellectual achievement, the study of a subject, education, training, the way of life of a particular nation, society or people, distinctive ideas, customs, social behavior, philosophy, practices, attitudes of a business or organization, agriculture and animal husbandry. Well, that's not quite everything that man does, but pretty much it's a huge, wide definition. And there's one theologian who's said something very helpful on this, we should make an important distinction between creation, which is one thing, and culture, which is something else. Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make. Now, of course, God is sovereign, so everything we make is also his in one sense. Or somewhat better, creation is what God makes by himself, and culture is what he makes through us. So that's the definition of culture we'll be using tonight, a very wide definition. So how is it then that man can actually make culture? Well, we can contribute to culture because we're made in the image of God. We have God-like capabilities. We're creative. We appreciate knowledge, skill, order, and beauty. 
And God has given us a cultural mandate. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Genesis 2.15 And God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Genesis 1.28 So this is what human beings are to do. Then the fall came. Adam and Eve sinned, and this disrupted the whole of creation. And work became toil, and the ground was cursed with thorns and thistles. But it is still clear from Genesis and from the fourth commandment that man is expected to work. God restrained the effects of the fall in creation through his common grace, the countless blessings that he gives to all mankind outside of salvation. So the image of God, though marred, is still there. And God is a God who is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 145, verse 9. So common grace is what ensures that the world is not as loveless, as ugly, or as brutal as it could be were God to withdraw his hand. And because of God's common grace... We still have a conscience, and there are also institutions. We've been hearing about in these, these lectures from John Mackay, institutions like marriage and the government, and also last week we heard about work as well, all of which make ordered life possible. And most of all, the most important thing about common grace it is, in, is, is that it ensures there is a day of grace for the gospel to be preached. And because of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, um, common grace is needed there as a platform for saving grace. Common grace provides the, a measure of stability. It provides the time and the freedom for the gospel to be preached to all nations. And believers, too, act as salt and light in influencing the world around them for good. Saving grace affects the hearts of believers. Uh, to be an influence for good. Now, of course, common grace can only restrain the heart. Only saving grace can actually give you a new heart, and that's what saving grace does. So that cannot but help be an influence for good uh, in the culture. So despite the fall, the remarkable thing is, thanks to God's common grace and the influence of believers in society, men and women are still capable of tremendous creativity, organization, and intellectual development. And we need to remember that um, it is God who gives people talents and abilities. Everything that we have is from God. And Paul told the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Non-Christian people can accomplish great things, and we're to thank God for that. But of course, a being a great contributor to culture doesn't make you a saved person at all. Not at all. And it is probably my personal view, I think it's unlikely that Shakespeare was a believer, but he had a remarkable insight into human nature. Think of the way in which he deals with great themes of love, ambition, power, jealousy in, in all his plays. His talent, I believe, was God-given, and uh, many of the cultural influences on him at that time were from people who were Christian believers. Uh, so we thank God for Shakespeare, 
We thank God too for great engineers, scientists, doctors, architects, and so on. And it is a fact though, sadly, that many of our artists, authors, and great intellects fail to give any praise to God for all the abilities that he has given them. And this just adds to their sin. But even so, God still gets the glory from these very unbelievers because their work reflects God's creativity. And they can only do what they do thanks to God's provision of life and talent and the influence of Christian believers in our culture. The angels, the demons, and Satan himself knows full well that it's only because of God that fallen people can be creative and contribute to culture. And one day in heaven, we'll see this more clearly. And this will be a further cause for giving thanks and praise to God. Well, let's look now at the theme of Christ and culture. And there have been many influences on our culture. And the question for us tonight is how as individual Christians we should respond to culture. Now, believers have grappled with this down the question down the ages. And a very helpful analysis of how Christians have related to culture was published in 1951 by the American theologian Richard Niebuhr. And uh, he published this book, and it was called Christ and Culture. And he argued that there were five main ways that Christians have related to cultures down the centuries. And I think it's a very handy tool to look at them. Uh, John Frame uh, said that everyone who discusses Christianity and culture discusses these models, and that's uh, pretty much true. And as we consider them, I hope you'll see why they're useful. Uh, I've had to simplify things, partly so that I can understand it, uh, and I hope you'll understand it too. Um, there are huge uh, depths to, to what was said. Um, I think the um, book by Don Carson, Christ and Culture Revisited, he takes a look at Richard Niebuhr's writing. I think it's a very useful book. He thinks it's a very valuable book. He, uh, the book's available tonight. He commends the depth of Neva's writing on culture, which he said stands in contrast with much shallow evangelical thinking in this area. At the very least, these models then we're going to look at five different ways of responding to culture. They provide a standpoint to, uh, that we can use to judge our own engagement with culture. So let's first, before we uh, delve in, consider a bit of background on Richard Niebuhr, and then we'll get to these five different models. Well, Richard Niebuhr was not an evangelical. Um, he believed uh, in the death, resurrection, and second coming of Christ, and the thought of judgment pervades his writing. In the 1930s, liberalism had come to dominate theology in the USA and Europe. Liberals taught that the miracles in the Bible never happened, Rather, they were put there by human authors as myth to teach spiritual lessons. Liberals believed that man could achieve his own salvation. It was optimistic and utopian. Salvation was to be salvation on earth. The gospel was a social gospel. But in, after the Second First World War, optimistic liberalism was being challenged, particularly in Europe. Man was not, a, not good after all. Uh, he was evil. He needed restraint. He needed saving from himself. So the social gospel was increasingly questioned. And Karl Barth was a very prominent theologian who rejected the arrogance of liberalism. Now, Karl Barth wasn't an evangelical, 
by any means. His school of thought is known as the neo-orthodox movement. And unlike a liberal, he did uh, agree that miracles really did happen, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. But Barth's view of scripture was shaky. He thought that the Bible contained the word of God, but it also contained errors. Liberal tools such as higher criticism were accepted by Barth. Well, I mention him because he was a big influence on many people, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Richard Niebuhr, and his brother, Reinhold. And uh, we're going to be looking at Richard Niebuhr tonight. Now, he was born in Wright City, Missouri. His father was a minister in the Evangelical Synod of North America. The family later moved to Lincoln, Lincoln Illinois. And Richard studied theology and worked as a journalist. He was ordained in 1916, took a PhD at Yale Divinity School, and in 1931, he became a professor of theology there. And he specialized in ethics, and he believed that uh, God's moral law applied both to believers and unbelievers alike. He believed there was a real struggle in the world between good and evil, and he believed that evil needed to be resisted. So that's the background of Richard Niebuhr. So let's now look at his uh, five models. And I've got a little handout here, and we're going to go down the list. And uh, in the middle, there's some possible scripture verses. Now, sometimes you'll have to understand um, that the scripture verses quoted are incorrect. But I think this, these are the sorts of scripture verses that they would quote um, if they were using scripture. And sometimes they would misuse it. But uh, that's why I've got the middle column there. So let's look at the first uh, model, Christ against culture. This is the total opt-out model. And on this view, Jesus Christ and his faithful followers have an unremitting hostility towards culture. Niebuhr says, whatever may be the customs of the society in which a Christian lives, and whatever the human achievements it conserves, Christ is seen as opposed to them, so that he confronts men with a challenge of an either-or decision. So you're either in the world or you're with Christ, he's saying. And those who hold this view, Christ against culture, say that believers should completely opt out of society. Aniba says that an exemplar of this approach was Tertullian, who lived from 160 to 220 AD. He was the leading proponent of this approach in the history of the church. And according to Nick Needham, Tertullian insisted that no Christian could actually take part in the affairs of any pagan society. No Christian could work for the government, the army, any educational institution, or any business which supported pagan religion. No Christian would ever go to any kind of public entertainment. And he urged believers to withdraw from many occupations. And he said of business, it was scarcely adapted for the servant of God, and politics was also to be avoided, as there was nothing more entirely foreign to us than affairs of state. Tertullian uh, did permit believers to read books. You might be glad to know, but teaching them was certainly not uh, acceptable because that involved the praises of idols interspersed therein. Now, we all know there have been Christians down the ages who have had this hostility towards culture. Um, there have been missionaries 
who have urged people to completely abandon their own culture when they accept Christ. And Niebuhr cites four reasons why we should reject the Christ-against-culture approach. And here are those four reasons. First, believers holding this view end up using the Bible to deal with their spiritual life and secular reason to deal with everything else. So the final irony is that believers end up being more worldly if they opt out. And the reason is they have to be in the, vo- in the world to some extent. You can't completely be in some sort of monastery. You have to be in the world to some extent. And when you go out, you don't have any ground rules. You don't have any ability to deal with the world because you've been taught that the Bible only applies to your spiritual life. And that's quite a, a good insight, I think. Believers, secondly, Niebuhr says, are so busy pointing and accusing finger at the world, they forget two things. First, that they're sinners themselves, and that God also gives blessings outside of salvation to unbelievers in his common grace. Thirdly, Niebuhr says, such believers are legalistic. Fourthly, such believers are at risk of believing that the spiritual is good, but the material and physical is bad, and that's the Manichaean heresy. Now, there are some things that this view gets right. The writer of 1 John 2 famously said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here, John warns, warns against devotion to the world system opposed to God the Father. But he explains in the very next verse, it is ungodly attitudes in the world that are a problem. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. And it's interesting that um, the word world is used in Scripture in many different ways. Um, For God so loved the world, John 3.16. 1 John 2, do not love the world. So the world is used as a physical place, a, a collection of people, and it's also used as a world system, a satanic system opposed to God the Father. So this second view gets Scripture completely out of balance. We are to be against worldliness, but we are not to opt out of the world. Jesus' prayer uh, that we heard from John 17 in the reading, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And Paul also deals in 1 Corinthians 5 with living our lives amongst people who are ungodly. And Paul expects us to do that. Uh, It's a very different situation inside the church, but outside we will be mixing with people who don't accept Christian standards all the time. So that's the first view, Christ against culture. So we go now from one extreme to the other. Uh, We go from opting out of culture to totally opting in it. And here, Christ and culture are on the same side and on the same level. So we're going from completely embracing culture, having gone from completely avoiding it. And uh, these people who totally opt in are called cultural Christians. They accept all the prevailing fashions of the time. Whatever exists, whatever happens, is seen to be of God. Tension between Christ and culture is eliminated. And this approach, I think, confuses God's perfect will 
with God's permissive will. All sorts of things happen in the world which aren't right. God, in his uh, mercy, gives us a time of grace where we can repent, but he does gives a, gives a freedom to us to do what's wrong. Uh, the fact that a man commits adultery or burgles a house is no reason to think that God actually approves of these things. But on this view, if it happens, then God blesses it. And Niebuhr says that this view was represented in the early church by the Gnostics. Uh, they thought of themselves as loyal believers, but in fact, really, they're not Christian at all um, because it interprets uh, Christ, he said, in holy cultural terms and tries to eliminate all forms of tension between him and social belief or custom. So on this view, Christians must blend in with the world and their distinctives must be eliminated and not really Christian at all. So the two extremes, opt in and opt out. One uh, blindly embraces culture, the second view. One blindly rejects culture, the first view. But these are not the only options. Uh, the next three represent uh, an attempt to balance things out in a Christian way. And each of these views made a major contribution to the flourishing of civilization in the West. You may agree with them, you may disagree with them, but I don't think anybody would disagree with the fact that these views massively influenced Western civilization. Now, each of these views holds that Christ is sovereign over culture and takes very seriously the opening verse of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So let's now look at uh, view three. Now this view is the synthesis view and it was held by Thomas Aquinas and he lived from 1225 to 1274. And this third approach doesn't accept everything in the culture but it is optimistic about the good that there is in it. And this synthesis view is best represented by Thomas Aquinas. He was the leading theologian of the Middle Ages and he is uh, such a famous philosopher that you have permission to call him by his first name. Uh, you can call him Mr. Aquinas if you like, but you can also call him Thomas. And uh, a lot of the books written about him, he will be called Thomas. Um, now the Greek philosopher Aristotle, he lived a long time before Thomas. He lived from 384 to 322 BC. And... Uh, his works at the time of Thomas Aquinas were being published. They were translated into Latin and uh, he was very popular at the time of Aquinas. And Thomas strongly endorsed some of what Aristotle said, particularly his rules of logic, which he used as the basis for rational argument. Uh, we tried to uh, saw off the halo from Aquinas, but there wasn't time today. I'm sorry about that. Thomas um, agreed with uh, the nature of anything, as Aristotle says, is determined by its purpose. The nature of anything is determined by its purpose or its cause. And Thomas used these ideas in mapping out a coherent Christian worldview which had huge implications for education, science and ethics. So Thomas appreciated that Aristotle had a limited but true understanding of reality. 
His laws of logic don't tell the whole story, but they're very helpful. Certainly not everything that Thomas said was good, but we can learn from his discerning approach to culture. And this sort of combining things together, as Thomas did with Aristotle and Christianity, is sometimes called a synthesis. And to synthesize somebody, uh, something, is to combine or cause to combine into a whole. That's the dictionary definition. Now, let me give an example of why this is useful. If you think about, say, the status of a human embryo, you could look at the chemical makeup of the embryo, how it came to be, and what it's like. But Thomas Aquinas would ask Aristotle's question, what is its purpose? And there's only one answer to that. Its purpose is to become a baby, to be born as a baby. So asking that question transforms the answer. You see, the answer is obvious, how valuable a human embryo is. So you can look at it just as matter, how it came about, um, what's its chemical makeup like. But then you ask the question, what is its purpose? And that it really is a very big question that you have to ask. And uh, Aquinas thought that was really important. Now, some people saw Aristotle as a plausible alternative to Christianity. Some denounced him, though, as an enemy of the gospel. And some said, well, you can hold both together. And you can hold them together despite the contradictions. But Thomas's approach was different. He got to grips with Aquinas and retained those parts which he thought were consistent with Christianity. And Arvin Voss, who has written a book, he's a Protestant, um, a Calvinist, he's written a book about Aquinas, and he says of Aristotle, uh, with the that Aquinas takes on Aristotle with the intent of appropriating such truth as he could from the philosopher. He does not simply recapitulate Aristotle. Let's consider another example, a modern-day example of a synthesis approach. Human rights is a concept that contains both truth and error. Christians start from a position of saying we have duties to God and our neighbor. And that determines how people should be treated. So we affirm human dignity, and actually we've got a much clearer grounding for human dignity because we understand that man is made in the image of God. Now, an atheistic understanding of humanity in which man is created by chance and death is the end doesn't do this. Only Christians truly understand that rights can be conferred by duties. But we can engage in this debate about human rights, and we do. That's one thing we do. We can help Christian politicians engage in a certain way in this, this whole debate about human rights. So this third view, uh, the synthesis view, it doesn't reject culture, um, but it doesn't cave into it either. It uses the best of culture in the service of God. And Thomas pointed out that, in God, that, uh, out that God's image and gleams of his glory can be found in fallen man and creation. There is order, stability, and law in nature and in human society. And Angus Manuge says of this, culture cannot be all bad because it is founded on the nature created good by God and that although nature and culture are fallen, they are still subject to God. And this approach of, uh, social, uh, of, of engagement, cultural engagement, had massive implications for higher education. 
it contributed to the idea of a university where God's truth is taught across every subject. We don't have that now. A university looks at truth in lots of contradictory ways. Uh, a, a physicist say it's, says it's like this. A sociologist says, no, 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 it's like this. Um, a, somebody in the religious studies department says, no, 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 it's like this. But that's not the view that Aquinas had. He had a central God's truth, and you can look at it from lots of different ways, lots of different angles, still the same thing. There was the idea there of university. Now, in the centuries that followed Thomas Aquinas, secular rulers understood themselves as subject to God's law. And that was a good thing. It was the product of Christianity fully, fully engaged with the good in culture. But a criticism of the third view, and there are, there are many criticisms of it, but one criticism is that it gives the church too big a role. In effect, there is the danger that Christ over culture becomes church over culture. And Aquinas viewed the church as the guardian of culture. And this could easily become the controller of culture. And it could easily confuse defending the gospel with defending a particular culture. And all of this is precisely what happened right across Europe in the Middle Ages. Now, at um, Auckland Castle, there is a throne room. And uh, there was a throne room even before Aquinas, apparently. And uh, I don't know what the little chair is, but the big chair is the chair on which the Prince Bishop ruled Northumbria. He didn't just rule the church, he ruled the whole of Northumbria. He was a secular ruler. Now, with the church at the top of everything, which was happening all over Europe, um, happened early in, in Northumbria um, and spread across the whole of Europe, um, with that happening, then it was no surprise that working for the church gave you a special status. <laughs> Priests, nuns, and monks were thought to be especially close to God. Only they were called. Only their jobs really mattered. So that's the third view, the synthesis view. Let's come now to the fourth view, the paradox view or the dualist view. And here, as in the previous view, Christ is recognized as the Lord of all. But this fourth view is very much more realistic about culture. It takes sin more seriously. The fourth view says that Christ exercises his rule through two different kingdoms. There is the kingdom of creation relating to the things of the present life and there's the kingdom of redemption concerned with the life of the soul. And Christians are citizens of both kingdoms. And the main figure representing the fourth type is the great reformer Martin Luther. As we would expect, he stands in contrast to the theologian Thomas Aquinas that we've just looked at. Aquinas saw everything uh, in reality as uh, all interconnected within a hierarchy. Everything fitted together. Luther, on the other hand, he saw that life abounds with principles in tension, principles that seem to pull in different directions. So Niebuhr uh, lists some of these tensions Grace and law, wrath and mercy, the old man and the new, redemption, creation, revelation and reason, the sacred and the secular, being a citizen of the heaven and a citizen of an earthly nature, 
and earth and heaven itself. Now, in many ways, the tensions are actually about the now and not yet of Christian living. And this has biblical support. Um, let me give you a few examples. There is a tension between this life and the next. Paul says, for, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 4. And there's a tension between our sinful and renewed natures. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5.17. So you see this idea of uh, tension and paradox uh, there. And a key driver behind Luther's attempt to reform the church was the tension between the two kingdoms, the heavenly and the earthly kingdoms. Luther swept away that the, uh, the idea that the church was the controller of the culture. And that was very important. And uh, I'll look at three ways in which this worked itself out. Three areas where the idea uh, that Luther's had worked the, the ways out. Firstly, in the state. Secular authority is given by God and is not the calling of the church. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, Mark 12, 17. So there is a role for the secular authority. That's a right role, but there's a role for the church and they're not the same. As, criticisms, as Christians, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, but we're also citizens of the earthly kingdom with ordinary life and responsibilities. Now Niebuhr describes Christians who hold this fourth view in this way. They refuse to accommodate the claims of Christ to those in the secular society, as in their estimation, men in the second and third groups do. So they are like the Christ against culture believers, yet differ from them in the conviction that obedience to God requires obedience to the institutions of society and loyalty to its members, as well as an obedience to Christ, who sits in judgment on that society. So Luther was very clear that we must obey the secular rulers. A second area where Luther really made a big difference in this area is that of vocation. Seeing that uh, uh, God's rule is mediated in two kingdoms made a big difference. Uh, it taught that dignity... Uh, of lawful labor. There is dignity in all lawful labor. Uh, Luther strongly opposed the error that roles, jobs in the church, were more pleasing to God than work outside the church. And what I'm going to reading, well, read actually is quite shocking uh, to, the, to the modern ear, but let me read it to you anyway. Um, he is very, very blunt, uh, as he often was on many things, but let me read you what Luther said about this whole area of those in quotes full-time Christian work um, perhaps as monks or nuns let me read you what he says when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework because God's command is there even such a small work must be praised as a service of God far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns again seeming secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. 
So Luther here is encouraging a, a very deep respect for work, um, both in the home and outside of the home as well. He said, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. Through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. And here's another quote. He said, it's pure invention that pope, bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate. Princes, lords, artisans, and farmers, the temporal estate. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is among them no difference at all but that of office. So Niebuhr praises Luther for strongly backing um, the broad education of the young. Uh, it's really important to learn, to, to develop a trade, to develop a skill, um, to learn about culture. That's important too. To learn about co uh, commerce and politics. All of these things are important. He gave a new dignity and validity to involvement in the world. And Niebuhr says of Luther, more than any great Christian leader before him, Luther affirmed the life and culture as the sphere in which Christ could and ought to be followed. Now, interestingly, perhaps no one took these beliefs further than the composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. And many regard him, uh, you don't have to, I do, many regard him as the greatest composer of all time. Famously, he wrote, Solo, Soli Dea Gloria, glory be to God alone, on most of his music manuscripts. He just wrote that at the end. Sometimes he used an abbreviation SDG, but on that particular manuscript there, he wrote it out in full. And Bach said, the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of a soul. And uh, it's very interesting to me that um, the historian and orchestral conductor John Elliot Gardner, who's himself uh, an agnostic at best, he's just published a book demonstrating the centrality of Bach's faith to all he did. And he argues in the book that Bach's aim was to write music designed to praise God and to inspirit and captivate his listeners. And uh, he talks about Bach always being at prayer in his music and that his, his motto was as true of his concert pieces as it was of his church music. So that's a very powerful um, belief that Luther had in vocation and that went on to influence belief in the importance of vocations in culture. You can be a, a musician and you can be glorifying God as Bach sought to do. So Luther challenged the prevailing views of the state and vocation. And thirdly, Luther talked about the very real presence of evil in the culture. His approach was very real, very true to life. The believer lives in the world with his eyes open to the dangers of sin, both in himself and in others. And Niebuhr explains, Human culture is corrupt, and it includes all human work, not simply the achievements of men outside the church, but also those in it. And there is this real sense of tension, always coming up against evil. And here's another quote from Niebuhr that helps to explain. The dualist, that's those who hold this paradox or Lutheran view, they know that he belongs to culture and cannot get out of it. 
that God indeed sustains him in it and by it. For if God in his grace did not sustain the world in its sin, it would not exist for a moment. In this situation, the dualist cannot speak otherwise than in what sounds like paradoxes. So that's the, uh, some, some, uh, a brief overview of how Martin Luther had this view of, uh, of paradox and uh, views in tension. But Niebuhr does go on to say this, there is a danger if the real tension that should be there between the two kingdoms is lost. And in, instead of a tension, there could be a passive acceptance of a division. So if, if the tension stops, if the springs stop being in tension, what would happen? Well, there could be a passivity that, that goes on. And David uh, McElroy puts this uh, well um, about what was to happen later. What developed as a result was a public-private divide with Christian teaching seen as applying solely or mainly to the private lives of its followers. And over time, callings came to be seen as matters on which the church had nothing to say. Now, that wasn't Martin Luther's view. The reformers did not teach private Christianity. And what I'm saying is that this fourth approach can become an excuse, could lead to a private public divide, particularly if you lose Luther's emphasis on vocation. And the distinction between the two kingdoms can be pushed too far. And that's what's happening today. There are some proponents of the modern so-called radical two kingdoms view. They go down this route. They hold out essentially minimal hope for Christian influence in the world. Essentially, we are left with a private religion in the church and little public voice. And I don't think Luther would recognize the modern radical two kingdoms view as his own. He certainly wouldn't uh, agree with the view that some would have about work outside the church being of far lesser importance to God than work in the church. Uh, no, he wouldn't agree with that at all. We should be careful not to water down the challenge of Christ. And that, that, that is a danger that, that, that can happen with this view. As uh, salt and light in the world, Christians should expect to be an influence. So let me sum up the good and bad aspects of the fourth approach. Um, Don Carson does this very well, and uh, I'm going to quote him now. If we lose the unique significance bound up with redemption secured by Christ in his death and resurrection, we lose the ongoing tension between Christ and culture that must subsist until the end. Yet it is possible so to focus on the rescue and regeneration of individuals that we fail to see the temporarily good things we that we can do to improve and even transform some social structures. One does not abolish slavery by doing nothing more than helping individual slaves. Now, I don't know whether you've met these, this view, but I, I have met it. Um, sometimes when I hear it, I think they are saying, well, Wilberforce made a great mistake. He shouldn't have done what he did. Um, you can take this uh, to extremes, and some people do that today. Let's go on then to finally the fifth view. This is the transformer of culture. And this is the view that Niebuhr says John Calvin held. And this is about believers who change the culture by living out their faith. 
It's about those who believe that it's an inevitable fruit of the gospel, but it's not about something. Let me tell you what it's not about. It's not about those who water down the gospel and reduce it to social work. Nebo was strongly against the social gospel. He described it as a God without wrath brought by men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So uh, he wasn't very keen on the social gospel. And so that's not what we're talking about here in the fifth view. And let me read what Niebuhr says about this fifth view. Those who offer it understand with the members of the first and fourth groups that human nature is fallen or perverted and that this perversion not only appears in culture but is transmitted by it. Hence, the opposition between Christ and all in human institutions and customs is to be recognized. Beniba goes on to say that this doesn't lead to a complete separation from the world or even an endurance of it while we wait for the second coming. Instead, converted men and women will have a cultural impact. He says of Calvin, more than Luther, he looks for the present permeation of all of life by the gospel. Now, it's interesting that um, the, uh, if you're a sociology student, you'd know the work of Max Weber, or Max Weber, um, famously translated, uh, traced the origins of modern capitalism to Calvinism and the Protestant work ethic. And in a biography of Calvin, Alistair McGrath argues that it may be said that one of Calvinism's greatest legacies to Western culture is a new attitude to work and supremely manual labor. Work, he went on, it may be added, is not understood as paid employment, but as diligent and productive use of whatever resources and talents one has been given. Uh, so, um, Niebuhr certainly praises Calva, uh, Calvin a lot. Now, he, he does talk about other, other people as well, uh, including um, F.D. Morris, the, um, as somebody who was uh, known as an early uh, Christian socialist as well in Britain. But he praises Calvin as uh, doing more to uh, look for the permeation of all of life by the gospel. And Niebuhr also points to uh, Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, and John Wesley as uh, having a view of responding to culture in this way and being able to change the culture through living out the gospel. And uh, I think with remarkable perceptiveness, Niebuhr makes some crucial distinctions between those who hold the dualist or Lutheran view and those who hold the conversionist or Calvinist view. Niebuhr says that the conversionists have a positive and hopeful attitude towards culture. He said that this stemmed from three theological convictions. First, their doctrine of creation. Second, their positive view of human work and culture. And third, their doctrine that God is at work in all history. Now, there's not time to cover all these three points, but let me just uh, develop the issue of creation, what Niebuhr says about that. And he's comparing the Lutheran and Calvinist view, the dualist or conversionist view. For the conversionist, however, the creative activity of God and of Christ in God is a major theme, neither overpowered nor overpowering the idea of atonement. What does he mean by that? 
Well, he's saying that the doctrine of atonement doesn't cancel out the doctrine of creation. To understand culture, both are essential. And remember that Scripture does point to Christ's work on the cross as liberating creation itself. Colossians 1 verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the Lutheran view, or the dualist view, the doctrine of creation is clear in that view. But the doctrine of creation and history tends to be lost. It's there at the beginning, but not so clear in the middle and at the end. And Niebuhr says that those who hold this fifth view um, take on board the first and last things of creation and uh, the view of a new heaven and the new earth. It's the only one of the five views that Niebuhr doesn't criticize, so most scholars assume that that's the view that he himself holds. So those are the five views, and uh, let's uh, just try and draw some conclusions from those five approaches to culture. I'm sure there are many applications, and uh, I've got uh, some to share with you. Uh, it's important to say that these five different views, uh, in some ways, are not watertight. They're more like zones than distinct categories. And Niebuhr said they, uh, he never intended them to be watertight. Uh, very often, it's, uh, there's a mixture of people holding several different views. And let's also remember that the five ways that Niebuhr suggested are just tools to help us understand Christian response to culture. Unlike the Bible, they're not infallible, but I do think they're helpful. So that's why uh, we looked at them tonight. So here's some applications. First, I think we shouldn't be afraid to stand as a minority of one against a, corruption, a corrupt culture. Often in church history, Christians have had to swim strongly against the tide of a hostile culture. It's something that um, Wilberforce and Shaftesbury had to do. Uh, looking back at their lives now, we think they were people surrounded by adulation, but that was not actually true. They suffered huge criticism and often were in a minority of one. And we shouldn't be afraid to stand as a minority of one. And secondly... Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, Christians will need to reject some things in the culture, but discernment is needed. We mustn't reject the good that is there. You can read a book or watch a film and enjoy them and learn from them. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything they say. Uh, Winston Churchill was a great war leader, but he had a fondness for drink. Um, we see morally flawed people and they can contribute massively to culture. And we should praise God, who gives talents and abilities through his common grace. Despite someone's fallenness, they can still do uh, a lot of good. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Thirdly, God will bless Christian faithfulness. John Frame, in his uh, uh, little essay on this, talks about little transformations, little transformations. 
Every time a Christian businessman decides to change his company's practice and execute honest contracts, there is a little bit of transformation. Being salt and light will make a difference. We have Jesus' word on that. Let's ensure that we're consistent so that the salt doesn't lose its saltiness. So God does bless uh, Christian faithfulness. Fourthly, try to discern the worldview. Um, as a student, I went to um, behind the, um, uh, the Iron Curtain uh, to Hungary when it was, um, the Iron Curtain was there, and I saw dreary uh, blocks of concrete flats which uh, were on housing estates for workers. I also stayed in uh, what I think was uh, a party member's house, and there was a huge contrast between those two things. But the view of the architects who designed those dreary concrete flats was clear. Uh, they didn't really believe in human individuality at all. And in the same way, when you watch a play or read a book, you can discern very often the worldview of the author. Um, there can be authors who do write from a clear Christian worldview. Um, the novelist P.D. James or the Russian author Dostoevsky, they often explore themes in their writing of redemption and conflict between good and evil. But most of the time, there's more than one worldview all going on at once. Uh, it, may be, it may be clearly uh, uh, one worldview, but there may be a mixture of things going on. We need to be discerning about what's going on. Very often, authors will buy into uh, some Christian concepts in what they write. Or they may be writing from a completely um, pagan sort of uh, worldview. We need to be discerning about the worldview. And fifthly, I think we need to be optimistic about what we can do. There is a real tension between living in our earthly and heavenly kingdoms. But it's a dynamic tension. It must keep us on our toes. It must not lead to apathy or cynicism. Yes, there are many limitations in this present life. But we can change more than we think. And thankfully, there is an abundance of examples on this point. There's a great cloud of witnesses. Christians really are salt and light here and now. Thank you. very comprehensive talk and lecture. It's question time now. Um, just throw that open to the meeting. Gentlemen there. Two things. You didn't mention the modernist culture and the postmodernist culture. And uh, I wonder how you would react after modernism in the postmodernist culture, the culture of no definite morals, the, um, the idea that man is at the center of everything. And um, that is the that is really the two main things I would like to ask you. No, I'm not. Uh, but I mean, I think this is the great thing about um, looking at different views in history. 
because it's been like that before. You know, in Roman times, you had man at the center. You had uh, lots of different deities going on. You had complete confusion. And um, so some of the early Christians, they faced this same battle before. And some people in the Middle Ages do. So I wasn't analyzing, I wasn't trying to say, where is our culture now? I was more looking at how have Christians responded in the past? Now, what you described there, at some times in history, it's been as bad. I know it doesn't feel like that, but it has been really bad, you know. Uh, it's really bad now, but it's been really bad in the past. And I think that's the value of looking back at how Christians have responded. Yeah, there have been times, I mean, certainly in Augustine's day, um, even though the emperor had converted and become a Christian, the Roman Empire collapsed. All those certainties fell apart. And uh, so you have Augustine writing The City of God. And uh, so he was trying to get to grips with what actually was going on, uh, with all these certainties going. And that's what we're seeing today, aren't we? All the, all the things that seem to make our society work really well are being swept away. Uh, you know, and uh, so I think this is the value of looking at what uh, the views that Christians have held and how they've responded. Sometimes they've got it wrong, and sometimes they've got something to teach us, really, and that's what I'm trying to draw out tonight. Colin, thank you so much. I really appreciated that. Uh, excellent uh, lecture. One thing I particularly appreciated, both at the beginning and at some other point, you stress the word, what you th this is how you think individual Christians should relate, or we're discussing how individual Christians should relate to your, their culture. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more what stands behind those, that choice of words. We've seen um, two mistakes in this area. Um, you saw in the Middle Ages, you had the throne room in Auckland Castle <laughs> where the church controlled the culture, and that was wrong. And you also s have seen at various times the, the the role of the church grow into become sort of social work. Uh, and you saw that with the social gospel. Uh, and that is changing the role of the church. Now, the people who are outside, uh, you know, in ordinary life, they have to live in the culture. Um, they go to a church. They're part of a church. But the role of the church is not to not to be involved in, in that sort of role that individuals are. Um, Wilberforce didn't ask the church to stop being the church and to um, uh, stop holding services and get involved in his anti-slavery campaign. No, Wilberforce was very keen for the gospel to be preached and he wrote evangelistic tracts and he was really keen for the gospel to reach uh, India and other parts of the world. That was really important that the church be the church. He wasn't wanting to change that. Now, there are some people who do, and down the history, they've got it wrong in, in several different ways. And uh, you see it at the moment. Some people say that the gospel itself uh, is like a pair of scissors. On one blade is the message of the gospel, of redemption through Christ, uh, offer of himself on the cross, and the other blade is social action. So that's, that's what the, the gospel in in, in whole is, and they say it's like two blades of scissors. And that isn't right. The gospel is just the gospel. It's not anything else. But the fruit of the gospel is a different thing. If we live out our life, if we are truly 
salt in our society, if we're truly light in our society, will expect results um, from our, uh, our witness. And now some people, the confusing thing is that um, although Niebuhr wasn't in any way an evangelical, he used some words in, in, a, in a way that's not being used today. <laughs> I think that's a bit confusing. Um, certainly they're like the word two kingdoms, the way Luther used that is not the same way as which uh, it's used today. Some people are writing books about these sorts of things. Some people are writing books about transformationism and that sort of thing. Well, they're not using the words in the way that Niebuhr used them, in the way that Calvin or Augustine or John Wesley or Kuiper and all these other people understood it. Um, they're using it in a way which seems, could tend to be uh, changing the actual nature of the church, which we, which we wouldn't agree with, really. David Wells in America has written, I think, quite extensively about culture and the church. And in one of his more recent books, I, I think I'm summarizing one particular point. He has said that the church today is facing something that the church has never faced before. And that is atheism the rise of atheism, whereas the cultures in the past always had some belief of some description in polytheism or, or, or any sort of theism or ism. But, the, but society today, there is a growth on surveys done in America of atheism, of non-belief in God, and that is something that the church has not faced before. Well, that's absolutely true, um, but I think it's faced some pretty bad challenges from polytheism. Uh, it's faced from challenges from Caesar worship. You know, do you, are you willing to swear that Caesar is Lord? And the early Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord. And um, it may be that the challenge today is of a completely different... There is a new nature, and I'm sure you're, that David Wells is right in that. But I think the challenges in the past have been just as great. And we're very grateful that we're not facing the sort of physical persecution in this country that, that other believers are in other parts of the world and have done in the past. So, yes, the nature of that particular challenge is new, but the fact of conflict within culture is not new at all. And I think we can still learn um, from how Christians have responded to culture, whether it's atheism or whether it's um, emperor worship or, or whatever it is. I think there are lessons for us. Uh, and I think it's, it's interesting that um, you know, Daniel studied the learning of the Babylonians. And presumably he got a degree, the equivalent of a degree, in Babylonian literature. Um, and there were things in Babylonian culture that were just literature. Like we read today, we read all sorts of literature, and our young people read all sorts of literature today, which are not written by, by Christians. Um, and Daniel could do the same thing, and he was held out to be a highly respected figure in his day. So the challenges there do have parallels, although they may not be the same. What, in your opinion, is the, the right agency to um, encourage and help individual Christians to um, engage with culture, to, to understand culture? 
The, the background for, for what I'm asking is this, that uh, I'm often troubled by the lack of awareness of Christian students um, of any Christian understanding of the subjects that they're studying, and I think this is a widespread problem. Yes, it is, and it, um, uh, really it's so important that um, the church preaches the whole counsel of God, isn't it? And um, maybe there's a role too for organizations who work with students to try and get them to study Christian worldview. Um, we've got a whole series of booklets out there on the Christian worldview, and this is evidently something they're doing in America very effectively. Um, in America, it's very, very common to have an adult Sunday school. You know, people are not from a, a Christian background or culture. And uh, that's a really good thing, I think. You can go uh, to an adult Sunday school and really get um, very strong, meaty uh, teaching. And maybe we need that sort of thing today. I went to a, I went to a, a Sunday school for children. Um, but we have adults now who never did. And they, they never had any education from their schools. And everything they got from their schools was probably confusing. Um, so maybe there is a role for adult Sunday schools and for other organizations that are involved with students to uh, try and promote uh, a Christian worldview because there are real challenges, I think, at university level and when people go into their jobs. And uh, yeah, that's very, very important, I think. Colin, I was wondering if you could just um, sort of recap and clarify slightly the distinction between models four and models five so um i mean there was you, you talked about how uh, on the one hand um there was this uh, this distinction around a uh, model five um interacting more and doing uh, as, as your notes have changing what you can to god's glory and at the same time you referenced how luther did engage with the society of the day and did challenge some of the uh, secular model of the day. I just wonder if you could yeah. sort of go over that distinction point again. I think it's important to remember that model five builds on model four. So it's all of the, f all of the above plus. Um, I don't think um, there's any problem with uh, Luther's, view, Luther's view and it's there in the Bible. There are two kingdoms. We're citizens of both. And uh, there is that tension. That's real tension. And uh, I think what those in the fifth view did was built upon that view and said, let's not become pessimistic and think we can do nothing. Um, uh, God has given us the ability to uh, be salt and light, uh, so let's be salt and light um, and let's see what we can do. And, you know, it's amazing. Completely secular um, writers of sociology would say, well, do you know, the person to blame for business and capitalism, that's John Calvin. He's the man that we blame for business and, and capitalism. And that's in standard university textbooks. And they see that. And perhaps we've forgotten the, the influence of uh, the reformers on the whole of Europe, really, um, the whole of our, of, our, of our culture here. So, yes, it's, there's, there's nothing um, wrong with um, believing that uh, there is this tension um, but it's just that we mustn't use that to become apathetic and think that it's a sort of, uh, uh, we can't do anything in the world at all because that isn't right and that isn't really what Luther thought. Yeah, just to emphasize that point, so it wasn't 
it wasn't particularly Luther's view that we should be pessimistic, but that's what it became, or that's how people, what I people probably, turned it into? I, th I think probably um, the great thing about the view is that it's realistic about evil. Uh, you know, there is this real conflict inside the heart of the believer. In, in uh, you know, you see wonderful things in the world, and then you see terrible things in the world. There is that conflict between good and evil, and it's really there. Um, the question is what we're going to do about it, really. And uh, I think that uh, Luther was great in saying that it doesn't matter what job you have. If it's a lawful job, it's according to God's moral law, then you can do that. Um, to the glory of God, no matter what it is. And uh, God is just as pleased um, uh, with... Um, There's a great quote that I always love to use uh, from Tyndale. Um, as to preaching the word of God and the washing of, washing of dishes, there is a difference. As to pleasing God, none at all. And if you have that view of washing dishes... Yeah? That's not saying that the role of the minister is important. It is very important. Paul says it's worthy of double honor. So that's very strategic, the role of the minister, the role of the preacher. But as to pleasing God, you can be washing dishes and pleasing God just as much. And what do you think that does for the status of the home? You know, what does that do for the status of manual work? Transforms it, doesn't it? So if you've if been in a culture which says, well, the only real jobs that matter are being, are being, being a monk or a priest or a, uh, that sort of thing. And then suddenly, no, um, manual work, being a carpenter, you can be just as pleasing to God as, uh, as a, nun a monk or a pope. In fact, uh, Luther said that the, um, the work in the home is even of greater value than the work of the pope. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, um, I think this is a, is a very useful thing. If you've got the time to go into it, this is a very useful book. Um, but there are other books that I think are great. There's great books on worldview, which I think are very useful for um, teachers. Um, there's a whole little series of pamphlets there on worldview. And there's a great book by Kevin. There's lots of books by Kevin DeYoung, which I think is really good to read. And I've just finished reading uh, Hole in Our Holiness, which is a really great book. Kevin DeYoung. What's it called? Hole in Our Holiness. Is it on the bookstore? It is. It's on the bookstore? Yes. So, anyway. There's the whole series, actually, uh, of uh, little books that's on worldview. So one of them would be good. One of the best books on worldview is the book of Ecclesiastes. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> and read that in one hand and Thomas Hardy in another. Fifth food, just talk, talk about the application of it. Um, who do you look to for uh, inspiration in applying the, the fifth view? What people today do you think exemplify the fifth view and the way they go about their own callings? That's a very hard question. <laughs> People of today, I think very often you're, not a, you're like a fish in water. You don't know you're in water, do you? Um, it's only with the passage of time you realize that little things have made a big impact. Um, I suppose um, 
I've seen some of the things that John has done with schools, and now you know there are hundreds of uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of pupils have gone through his schools, and that maybe a little thing has made actually a huge impact on people's lives. So things like that you can see. Um, going down history, um, I think it's great to read people um, like Wilberforce, Shaftesbury, and those are the sort of people who, who give me inspiration, really. And they didn't sell short on the gospel either, as well. They were very clear on the gospel, and we're very fortunate in our history. There are, there are lots of people who, who didn't sell out on the gospel, and they were very clear. Um, and uh, so those are the sorts of things that I like reading. Can I just say thank you to Colin for his lecture tonight and for the way in which he's handled the discussion. Thank you very much.